I want you to take your Bibles to the book of Romans. Uh, it be Romans chapter 3, uh, which is page 913 if you're using a Bible there in front of you. Romans chapter 3, going to look at verse 19 and 20 because what we're doing today, we're returning to the book of Romans, but we're actually launching the book of Romans. We're actually looking at a different series in the book, chapters 1 through 3 up to verse 20. We've been looking at a series entitled um, Understanding the Human Condition. We completed that series a couple of weeks ago, and today we're starting a new series at a whole new uh, thrust in the book of Romans entitled Sola Fide, uh, The Truth That Changes My World. And we'll be looking at that. And what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to be trying to give a brief, my message will be a little shorter this morning because I want you to get to the ministry fair, but I'm going to give, give a panorama overview of chapters 3 through 7 and just sort of talk about the, the theme, what, it, what is sola fide and how does it fit? What does it mean to our lives? I'm going to try to look at that this morning. But I'd like to read verse 19 and 20, which conclude the previous section, and then read verse 21 to 24 by way of introduction of the new section. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray as we embark on this journey this fall that you would instruct us on this whole theme of faith alone. Faith alone for beginning our journey with you. Faith alone for the continuance of our journey with you day by day. Lord, teach us even this morning as we come with so many things vying for our attention in our lives, may our hearts be stilled that we can learn from you and your word, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, confession, I do not have a keynote presentation this morning. You're going to actually have to listen uh, today, I'm sorry, we had a leadership seminar, we had a great time, 160 people, Friday night, Saturday, and I just couldn't get all my, I couldn't get all my materials together for both in time. So, um, we're looking at Romans 3 through 7, sola fide. The Protestant Reformation in the 16th century was seen by its proponents as first a protest against the practices of the church, but more importantly and more prominently, it sought to reform the church. That like any, and like any great historic movement, there were catchphrases, there were particular uh, slogans that were embraced, that gave voice to the movement, and expressed the, the, as a rallying cry what they were about. There were three such rallying cries, expressions of faith of the Reformers, and they were all tied around a word sola. Sola means only or alone. Sola Scriptura, only the Scripture, Scripture alone. 
Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Each of those is actually drawing a contrast with other things. Sola Scripture, Scripture alone, means it's not the traditions of the church through the centuries. It's not the edicts of ecclesiastical spokesmen. It's only the Bible that serves as the authority for faith and practice. Sola gratia, grace alone. It's saying that our acceptance with God is not based on a system of law, not a, a, where a person is graded on a curve, and, and if you're high enough in the curve, you'll, you'll get in, but rather that God's unmerited favor is the only means by which anyone will enter into eternal life and acceptance with God. It's, it's grace alone. And sola fide, faith alone. It is not one's piety or one's personal devotions or works all that anyone can contribute to their, is to place their faith in the, in the rescuing work of Jesus Christ. That the, the idea of sola fide is it's faith alone. And the word faith, of course, means trust. It is also translated dependence, to depend on. All these things, it, it is not simply an intellectual belief. It is an expressive faith. It is the entrusting oneself. It is, it is not just looking at the chair and thinking it can hold you. It's sitting in the chair. It's entrusting yourself to the chair. And the idea here, Paul is saying it is faith. It is, it is trust, it is dependence that actually is the reality of our acceptance and our enjoyment of a relationship with God. The terms faith and belief, the noun form, uh, excuse me, the, the verb form of faith, to believe, which are both from the same word in the original, are used 27 times in these chapters. It is a theme that is constantly throughout, and, and that's why I think a good title for this series is Sola Fide, the truth that changes my world. And as we look at these passages, there are two particular things that I think Paul is saying to us as to why he emphasizes in these passages, it's faith alone. It's faith alone. And the first of those is that we depend on someone else's actions for our acceptance. That's what he says in chapters 3 through 5. It's faith. It's, it's not you. It's not about you. It's you trusting yourself. It is you depend on someone else's actions for your acceptance. And in chapter 6 and 7, as we'll see, it is faith alone because we depend on someone else's resources to live our lives. Let's look at the first one in chapters 3 through 5. We, we depend on someone else's actions for our acceptance. We need someone else's actions. And in chapter 3, and then in chapter 4, and in chapter 5, he tells us three reasons why. Why it's faith. Why it's, why it's entrusting ourselves to someone else. Why it's not about us that we can do it. And he says three reasons. The first reason is found in chapter 3. Our behavior has caused us to fall short of God's standard. Now, in Romans chapter 1 to 3, culminating at verse 20, God has been saying to us, basically, no one is, is going to earn their, their relationship with God. He culminates that in verse 19 and 20, verse of chapter 3, and he says, the whole world's guilty before God. There, there's nobody that measures up, and, and nobody is going to make it. And, and then he said, nobody is going to be declared righteous and acceptable to God on the basis of, of how good they are and how much they've tried. And he, and, and then he, but then he says an amazing thing in verse 21. He says, but there is another way. 
to be righteous. And this righteousness is found in Jesus Christ and our entrusting ourselves into him. And he says again, the reason that's necessary in verse 22 and 23 is this righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because everyone sins and everyone falls short of the glory of God. The, The standards of God, he says, Our trust, our dependence must be on someone else's actions to make us acceptable. He then says a second thing. Another reason why it is utterly necessary, completely necessary for us to entrust ourselves to somebody else's actions to be acceptable is because no one has ever found acceptance with God any other way. Now, I've told you before that in the Roman church, Roman churches, there were uh, people with a Jewish background that had come to faith in Christ. No, people with a, what we now call pagan background, more the, the Greek, the Roman mythology, the, the belief that God was in everything, that, or, or he, was, there was, it, he was not a superintending God, very different views of God. And they're coming together. Paul is speaking specifically now, I think, to the Jewish Christians here. And he's saying, okay, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, well, this is, this is a pretty new idea, you know, this idea of, of, of faith alone, sola fide. I mean, come on, what about the law? What about the commandments on Mount Sinai? I mean, and Paul says, wait a minute. Do you think there's ever been another way to get to God except utter dependence on someone else's actions? He says, do you think in the Old Testament those people were, were more moral, that they were more spiritual? That they were more righteous, that, that because they had the law, that they were, you know, super Christian types and religious people, and, and, and they got in because he says, no. He says, no one has ever, no human has ever earned his way into a relationship with God. And Paul then pulls out the big gun. And he says, okay, I'm going to bring out exhibit A, Father Abraham. This was the big guy. In the Jewish faith. This was their man. This was the starter. And, and he says, okay, let's look at how he was brought into relationship with God, how he was made acceptable to God. And so he starts off in Romans 4, 1 to 3. Here's what he says. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified, and that means declared righteous by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. He says, nobody ever, ever since the fall of man into sin has ever been able to earn their way to God by by their devotion and their faithfulness and their goodness and their spiritual acts. Nobody has ever been able to measure up. He says, Abraham didn't. He was accepted on the basis of his faith and the provisions that God made. He'll talk about that more in Romans 4, that believing the sacrificial system gave a temporary forgiveness for sins. But he recognized he was not able to earn his way to God. So the second reason, Paul says here in chapter 4, why we need to put our trust in someone else's acts is because it's always been that way. No one has ever earned their way to God. And then third in chapter 5, he says our very nature is enslaved by sin and condemns us. Verse 12 of chapter 5 He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death passed to all men because all sinned. 
This is the doctrine of original sin or also called ancestral sin. It doesn't mean original, meaning first sin. It's talking about the effect of sin, actually, that we, are, we, we have as a result of our relationship with our forefather, Adam, we have inherited a nature that is turned from God, that we are bent away. And he says, you're not going to earn your way to God. Your, your very nature is, is influenced. And I've said this before, when we were looking at this in Romans chapter 1 through 3. That's why the world is the way it is. The world is not how it ought to be. People are not how it ought to be. We are not how we ought to be, how God designed us to be. But we, things have been twisted and turned and corrupted is the word that's used. And he says, you need somebody else to do their actions and on the basis of their actions and you're entrusting yourselves in them to find acceptance with God. Okay, so who is this person? Well, he tells us in Romans 3, verse 21 to 24, this person is, is Christ. That we are given what, what theologians say is an alien righteousness, a righteousness not our own. We stand in his righteousness that Jesus Christ himself fulfilled all righteousness. He did everything in thought, word, and deed, obediently, faithfully, even, in the, even in, the, in the greatest moments of his suffering. It says he obeyed in all things. He was always yielded to the Father's will. He was fully, truly the only man that's ever lived that lived holistically, righteously in every part. And we are given the privilege of finding an acceptance on the basis of what he has done. Imagine this local ice cream place, and there's a sign put on the door and the window, and it says, uh, free banana splits. Anybody that come, can come in and bring in a report card with straight A's. And you're thinking, dogs, I love ice cream. I don't have straight A's. And so... You think, and then you, and then you read the fine print, and you find out there is a family plan, and it says, and we will accept any brother or sister that has straight A's. And for the first time in your life, you like your younger brother who always gets A's because you're able to use his report card to get your banana split. Because you were not able to meet the requirements, but he did. And on the basis of his report card, your brother's report card, you find acceptance to get your banana split. The scripture is saying we stand in someone else's report card. It's striking in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11. It says... In Hebrews chapter 2 is talking about what Jesus has done for us and how he has worked in our, in, in our behalf to make us acceptable to the Father. And it says this cool statement. He says, and Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. There is a family plan. We can come. We can put our trust. And we don't say, well, you know what? I'll bring my little buddy, my, my little Tommy's Brother, the brother, whatever his name is, uh, I'll bring his, I actually don't know him, um, but we'll bring his report card, and I'll bring mine too, you know, and I'll wow him. No, yours, yours don't mean anything. Your card is, it doesn't matter. The only one that matters is the straight A's. Your card isn't adding something to it. It isn't faith, 
and works. It isn't, well, Jesus does his part and I'll do my part. Your part doesn't help. It's all his report card. It's all his righteousness. And if we come with our report card, not only won't we get a banana split, but we won't be acceptable to receive what God is willing to give us as we come in the acceptance that Jesus Christ gained for us. So the first thing Paul is laying out as he talks about, man, it's, it's only faith. It's not your report card and, 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 and his it's Christ. It's all faith. It's sola fide. But the amazing thing of faith is that faith is not only the entrance step to this thing of walking and knowing God. The second thing we find that he plays out to us on the theme of sola fide is that we depend on someone else's resources to live our lives. And I believe this is the teaching of chapter 6 and 7. You see, these chapters also highlight the daily role of faith. We are not called to embrace salvation by faith alone, only to then try and live the new life in our own strength. Christ loved people enough to die for them 2,000 years ago. He loves them enough to live in them today and to enable and sustain them with his strength. And every step we take since salvation, we take in the same faith that brought us to Jesus in the first place. And Paul tells us in Romans 6 and 7, this means three things. The first thing it means is that we are not captive to living under sin's mastery. He says this in Romans 6, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He says your old self, the old you, the old totality of who you were ceased to exist when you by faith entrusted yourself to the, 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 the work of Jesus Christ in your life. And he, you now live in light of that relationship and it now empowers you to not live under the mastery of sin. That it begins to change you. And when you entrust yourself to Jesus Christ as your Savior, the old you has died. Now, who is that old you? Well, that is the old you that is simply, as we all are human beings, we have one nature, our human nature that is controlled by sin. The theological term that is used is the word sarcos, flesh, uh, our fleshly nature. But he says you've also been given a new orientation. And this is the life of Christ in you. This is a, a new disposition where now you have, and they vie. They are within you. The, the, the flesh is still there. But the new life is there that can be appropriated by faith and lived out. You don't have to live as a slave as a, as under the tyranny and bondage of sin anymore. There's a beautiful illustration. And what he's saying, basically, there's a new alternative to the life of the flesh. It is the life of Christ lived through us. Augustine was a, one of the most famous of the church fathers he lived and ministered during the latter 300s, the end of the 4th century. And, and Augustine was a brilliant scholar. Uh, he literally traveled the whole Roman world, went to all of the epicenters of learning and intellectual dis, uh, discussion. And he would go and he would converse. And he was a brilliant philosophical teacher. He knew all of the philosophies. He, he was conversant in all of them. People were mesmerized by Augustine's brilliance. 
But as much as they were taken with his mind, there was another part of Augustine that was also involved all the time. And from the age of 16 to the age of 32, he continually, constantly, wherever he went, gave his body to sexual practices of the most amazingly diverse variety. He was obsessed with sexual experience, a reckless sexual lifestyle. He describes it in his own words, in verse, talking about his, what happened to him at 16 and then continued on for years. He said, the frenzy gripped me and I surrendered myself entirely to lust. From a perverted act of will, desire had grown and when desire is given satisfaction, habit is forged. And when habit passes unresisted, a compulsive urge sets in. And by compulsive, he means controlling. He was obsessed with this thing in his life. Sexual expression was an obsession to Augustine. He was controlled by it in his own words. And at 32 years of age, God penetrated the heart of Augustine and brought him to faith in Jesus Christ. And he wholeheartedly gave his life to Jesus Christ. His life began in his own testimonies. He has many books. Most personal is his spiritual autobiography called The Confessions. And he talks about how his life began to change. And how God began to deliver him from his, his absolute captivity to various sins, sexual experience being a dominant one. He gives a, 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 an illustration, and many of you may have heard this story, but he tells it as an anecdote to give a visual of how he viewed his life. He was back in one of the major cities where he had been well-known as a philosopher and at the same time well-known among the women, young women of the town. And he was walking down the city, and this was post-salvation experience. He's walking down, and he sees a woman coming towards her, and he recognizes her. This young woman is a woman he's been sexually involved in with. And uh, they're walking. She's got a broad smile on her face, glad to see him. And uh, he just walked right by her. And she just did a 180. And she yells at him. And she said, Augustine, it is I. And he looked over his shoulder and he said he, he, he didn't even turn back. He just needed to set his face to keep going. But he said to her over his shoulder, ah, but it is not I. It's not the I you know. And he uses that illustration to say, apart from Christ, it is I. It is still a dominating thing. It is still, it is still the, the idol, the, 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 the God of my life. It is still an obsession to me. But he said, I, I am no longer under the mastery of a lifestyle. When I, when I have been freed by faith in Christ Daily experience and living out that faith, one of the transforming realities is we are not captive to living under sin's mastery. The second thing we learned is also in chapter 6, we are now called to live under Jesus' mastery. He says this in the latter part of the passage, but now that you have, in verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. He says, and, he, and Romans chapter 6 has this triad of imperatives, triad of commands. And they're repeated a number of times each. It's a verbal imperative. The first is, it says, you must know. You must know who you are. 
You must know what you've been given. You must know what it means to stand in Christ. You must know your changed position, and, and you, must, you must have that seared into your mind that I am no longer a captive to these addictions as I once was before Christ entered my life. Secondly, he says, you must count on that. And that's what we used a number of times. Some versions say reckon on. But he says, you, you know, not, it's not just intellectual. Now you've got to embrace that and, and act upon that. And then the third word is this. You must yield. You know who you are. You count on that. You, you trust in that reality. And then third, you're continuing to yield the lordship of your life and will to Jesus Christ. A number of years ago, Nancy Reagan started a, a national campaign aimed at helping school children uh, not get led into drugs, and it was called Just Say No. It was a well-intentioned program. It had some positive effect. It certainly brought attention to a, a national malady of drugs among younger children. Um, but I, I would suggest to you that most Christians know that you don't just say no to temptation and destructive elements. That the way we live victoriously in the Christian life isn't to just say, well, I'm going to suck it up. I'm going to tough it out. I am, I am not going to watch that on the internet. I am not going to respond that way anymore. I'm never going to be angry again. I'm not going to lose my cool in traffic, no matter how crazy people are. I, I'm going to just say no. I'm going to just say no. We know that before we are ever going to really be able to say no, we've got to first say yes. We've got to yield because it is Christ living his life within us that enables us to say no. And if you don't ever spend time with Jesus and you're not in his word and letting his word renew your mind and his spirit bring you under his influence and you're trying to tough it out out there on your own saying, no, I'll do the right things, you're going to find a lot of disappointment in your struggles. I would suggest you Augustine would not have become the man of, impurity, of purity that he truly did if all he did was every time he said, oh, I'm just going to say no, I'm going to say no, I'm going to say no. No, he said yes. He said, Christ, help me. Christ, live your life through me today. It's faith. It's only faith. It's dependence on Jesus. It's not resting in our own resources and that's why Paul tells us the third thing, I think, in chapter 7 about the need of sola fide in living our lives because we fail miserably to live on our own power. I believe chapter 7 is the story of a believer that is living in defeat. I think Paul is portraying for us a, a situation where if we are not appropriating the power of Christ in our life, if we are not resting in Christ, we will see a life of defeat, and we will not see the dramatic change that he has designed for us. It isn't only faith that enters the relationship with God. It is faith that actualizes and, and, and embraces the power and, and, and liberates the power of God to be lived in our lives. It's why I am positive Romans chapter 7 never mentions the Holy Spirit. And why in Romans chapter 8, which is the picture of a Christian life lived in victory, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 19 times. It's a totally different way of living. You can live in your strength, and you'll define your, description, your, your life with Paul's description, as he described in Romans 7, 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. 
He doesn't say anything like that in Romans 8 when he's living by the Spirit. It's faith. It's only faith. And faith, and when I say only faith, I don't mean just, oh, I just got to think the right way. I just got to, you know, condition my brain. No, faith is active. Faith is entrusting. Faith is, is reading the Word of God. Faith is listening to God. Faith is, is embracing God in relationship moment by moment, day by day. That's, it is actualizing the faith. It isn't just looking at the chair and saying, yeah, yeah, Jesus will heal me. No, you're entrusting yourself to Jesus. It's, it's a moment by moment faith that we are not living the life of the flesh. We are living the life of Christ through us. And that comes by dependence upon him. The Christian life is about Christ. It's about Christ. It is about our putting our faith in him and not in ourselves. We depend on Jesus' actions, his righteousness for our acceptance with God. But we also depend on Jesus' resources to live our lives, we are called to faith. A living, active, dependent, trusting faith. It's the mark of what Christianity is. Next Sunday, we're going to be launching uh, the specific studies in the book of Romans and looking at individual passages. And at the same time, and Pastor Ben talked about this last week, we're going to be tracking with these booklets. This is called the Common Life Book. And just in case you weren't here, I'm just going to highlight a couple of things. This book has been put together by uh, eight people here. I, I've been the cheerleader. They've done all of the work, and that, that's, they've done a phenomenal job. You'll see that if, as you look at the ministry table and see it. There is a copy of this book out on the table. There are copies there. We're asking for today they just be for display because next Sunday we're going to give them out. The reason we're doing that is because the books actually start as a follow-up to next Sunday's study. And we don't want everybody to get all twisted around. Um, if you absolutely can't be here next Sunday and you can really have doleful-looking eyes, you may walk out with one this morning. But I want to just tell you what, what this was designed there are in this, there are daily readings that take the theme of Sunday and, and go an Old Testament passage, a New Testament passage, a gospel, various sections of Scripture. That's all explained in the book. There's questions that are given to ask adult question, child question. There are links, and you can, you can the, they've got the barcode, you know, you put your phone on there and it will take you, and all of a sudden you'll be linked to the song that we're in, suggesting you listen to that week. Uh, there, are, there are other resources that you're linked to. There are articles in here as well. There are scriptures that I mentioned every day that are encouraged to read. We envisioned two things as this was put together, two settings when this book would be used. One was a person by themselves with a cup of coffee, just wanting to have their heart quiet and, and to continue some of the thoughts maybe they had Sunday or, or maybe just needing some new thoughts and God just giving some, some practical ways, realizing that there are hundreds of other people in our body that are, that are looking at those same truths that week, listening to that song this week. One setting was just a person sitting there with a cup of coffee by themselves. The other setting we envisioned was a table in a family. That around dinner, maybe at the end of dinner, maybe before dinner, you're sitting there and you're, you do the questions and you ask the questions of everybody, 
Uh, it's, we're encouraging the same question be used throughout the week, and you, you, I think you'll see why as you look at the questions. There is also a blessing that is, that is every day, every week, that you share and, and, and share together as a family. Um, it's designed for both of those settings, or could be one or the other, or maybe there'll be another you'll have, but I hope you'll, I hope you'll take a look at these and participate with us as God prompts you to. Uh, one of the things I'm encouraged about, I think the worst statement I ever heard a guy make about preaching, and he was a well-known pastor. I was at a pastor's conference, and I still haven't forgiven him. Uh, he was trying to argue how important it is for people to be in the Word on their own, which we all agree with. But he was talking about preaching, and he said, you know, preaching, preaching, Hearing a sermon isn't really going to do much. And here was his statement, which still haunts me to this day. He says, this is what happens when people come to, to a worship service. Out of the sermon, they get their thimble full of truth, and they dump it out in the parking lot before they get in their car. Now, I'm hoping this will cause you to take the thimble full a little longer with you and to process it together as you live out, as we all live out the common life together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you want our lives to be centered on a relationship with you, that faith, trust, dependence really is the thing that changes every part of our world. So, Lord, teach us what that means and what that looks like together as a people as we journey through this series. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We are dismissed. Encourage you to hit the ministry fair.